Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Yesterday, I, in the afternoon, I gave a, a guided meditation on, on impermanence or anicca, and this evening I'd like to speak a bit more about it. And, and maybe many of you have heard that story. The, the Buddha, he was a, a son of a, of a king uh, in a small kingdom, which is in a country which is today Nepal, and he was brought up in a very privileged uh, situation. He was um, living in, in different palaces, and all the things around him were very highly controlled. He wasn't seeing anything which was uh, in any way connected to old age, sickness, and death. He was just surrounded by beautiful people, young people, healthy people, and he had the best of everything. And his father thought that this was a very good way of keeping him um, not questioning life, because keeping him happy all the time would prevent him, you know, to start to think think too much and maybe uh, wanting to leave behind this beautiful life he had. Because when the Buddha was born, when he was a baby, predictions were made that this was a very special child and either he would become a world-ruling, wheel-turning monarch or he would become a Buddha. If his father was concerned he would become, that he would live, uh, would go forth from home to homelessness and, and try to, to become a Buddha because he, he wanted him to stay and take over the kingdom from him. So he tried to prevent him uh, starting to think too much, basically. That's what modern consumerist society is trying to do with us as well, but <laughs> it obviously hasn't succeeded because otherwise he wouldn't have come. <laughs> so, and then one day, the Buddha was um, taking, he was having uh, the opportunity actually to leave the palace and to go out into the town or into the village and uh, so he escaped, basically, and he was taking um, the carriage and and going, being driven out by, by the charioteer into the into the town, and he was looking out and and then he saw different sights he had never seen before, and in the scriptures they are called the devadutas or the heavenly messengers, because they woke him up basically. And what he saw was all about impermanence, because before that was hidden from him, because everything was constantly uh, at its best and wasn't uh, showing any signs of decline. So he saw a, a sick person lying you know, on the side of the, of the road in its own fluids and suffering very much. 
and then he saw um, an old person, you know, tottering along at the side of the road, looking, you know, not very attractive, basically. Like it's written in, in the sutta with yellow teeth and, and white hair and yeah, yeah, being bent over on a stick and hardly able to hold herself up. And then the next side was he saw a corpse laying, lying on the side of the road, a dead person basically, he had never seen before. So he got really, uh, he was shocked what he saw. And then he, he asked the uh, charioteer, he asked him, you know, what, what is that? And he explained to him what it was and then he said, will that happen to me as well? And he said, of course, that happens to everybody. And that was a shock to him. And then they drove on a little bit further and then he saw a, um, an ascetic with, on arms round. And it struck him that this person had, had a very uh, calm demeanor and a very uh, peaceful presence. And that really etched itself into his mind, that, that sad. And then he, he came back home and he started to reflect on what he had seen. He basically had seen for the first time really deeply, he had seen impermanence, that everything which is of the nature to arise is of the nature to pass away, is of the nature to cease. And, you know, in, in terms of old age, sickness and death, that's, we can see that very, very strikingly. And... So after that he, at one point he left the palace and left behind his family and started, you know, to go to seek out different teachers and then wasn't satisfied with what he learned from them. And in the end, you know, he found his own um, teaching, which is... Um, if you want to encapsulate it in just a very short sentence, we can. It is said, the the sentence, you know, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as me or mine. That's the essence of the teaching of the Buddha. And why is that so? It's because of everything which is of the nature to arise is of the nature to cease. So if we attach to the dead the result will be suffering. And that became very clear to him. So he tried to um, go very deep into the matter and through very deep insight into that come to, to see the true nature of things which results in in disenchantment and dispassion and complete uh, letting go and freedom from attachment. <coughs> and you know the words disenchantment and dispassion, they don't have uh, you know a very good um, publicity in 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 the world nowadays. I think you have noticed. <laughs> so, but in reality, those words actually mean something quite different than from what 
people usually think that they mean. For example, disenchantment, as I said yesterday, means you know just being being clear, having woken up from the spell, like you know in those fairy tales where somebody is is you know in a very confined space, you know, in a, lives in a very little world, and then something happens and they wake up, and they never can go back to that confinement. Because if you see for once the true nature of things really deep enough, you can't forget it. And disillusionment, I think has, you know, that word has also quite negative PR, I think. But in reality it means, you know, letting go of delusion. Seeing really deeply the way things are. And, you know, that doesn't mean that, uh, for example, because everything is of the nature to arise and to cease, everything is impermanent, and because of that, if we attach to it, uh, it will lead to suffering. But if, you know, if we see it just for what it is and we don't attach to it, it doesn't lead to suffering. It just leads to, you know, to the fact that all things are unreliable. But that doesn't necessarily include that they are suffering. Only if on top of that unre unreliability we attach to those things which are arising and ceasing, then suffering is the result. So I think this was one, is one of the points where the teaching of the Buddha has been uh, quite misunderstood when it came to the West in the beginning. Because the first noble truth being, being translated as there is suffering, for example. But in reality, you know, the word dukkha can be translated in many, many different ways. And suffering is just one, one way of translating it. But a much better way is unsatisfactoriness or unreliability. Because if you look into the origin of the word, it, it, consists of two parts. Yeah? The first is do, that means you know that something like um, difficult or bad. It's in the Sanskrit language. And ka means um, the axle of a wheel. And it means basically that um, the hole where the axle of a wheel is inserted actually. This is what ka means. And so the word dukkha means that the axle doesn't fit very well into the hole in the middle of the wheel. And so it's a bumpy ride if you, if you ride in a, in a cart like that. <laughs> and that's the way you know how, how uh, he describes life. Because everything is arising and ceasing, it's a bumpy ride. But if you know that is a bumpy ride, and you don't expect it to be not bumpy, then there's no suffering. Because you just have the agility of mind and body to just, you know, go with the bumps and just, just, uh, or surf on the wave, so whatever you want to say. There's many different ways. But if you expect everything to be constantly even, you will suffer. So to be even amidst the uneven, that's what the Buddha wants to explain to us, that this is possible, actually. 
And it is possible if we really take uh, the pains of looking deeply into the way things are. And it all starts with looking at arising and ceasing of phenomena. That's the you know, entrance gate to, to the path. And there is a, a short sutta in the scriptures where before Sariputta was, Sariputta is one of the two main disciples of the Buddha, there's Sariputta and Moggallana, and Sariputta is, uh, was always praised for his outstanding um, wisdom. And when he was still like an unenlightened ascetic wandering about, one day he came to, to, the, to a town and he saw one of the first five disciples of the Buddha. He was called Asachi, he was on arms round, and at that point he was, he was already enlightened. He was enlightened after hearing the second discourse of the Buddha, the Anatalakana Sutta, that's the um, discourse on selflessness or on not-self. And uh, when he was hearing that discourse, he, he was enlightened. And after that, you know, his, his whole presence, his demeanor was very peaceful and... Uh, very impressive, obviously, because Sariputta saw him in town. He got very interested. What, what does this, this bhikkhu, what does he know that he has such a, a presence? So he, he went over to him and he said, uh, who is your teacher? And he said, yeah, my teacher is the Buddha. And then he said, what does he teach? Can you tell me? And because he was just recently enlightened, he didn't feel very confident, you know, to give a whole discourse mm -hmm. on what he had learned. But he said he could just give him a little, a little um, <coughs> transmission, basically. So he said, you know, my teacher is the Buddha, and what he teaches is that everything which is of the nature to arise is of the nature to cease. And when Sariputta heard it, he entered the stream. So he was, he, he understood and he realized what's in the Pali can on the first level of, of enlightenment. And then after that he was, you know, practicing for another two weeks and then he became an Arahant. So obviously he was very well prepared. But it really, obviously, you know, this very small statement, everything what is of the nature to arise is of the nature to cease, is very powerful. If you have the mindfulness, that you can let it really hit deeply instead of constantly pulling away from it into thinking about the past and about the future or hopes and fears. But if you really can open up to that, it has the potential, this very simple sentence. It's, I find it amazing because, you know, to a certain extent we are all aware that of that fact, because we, we see every day, you know, flowers wilting and, and snow falling and, and then starting to rain, it's constantly changing, we are aware of it, but we are aware of it on a, on a very superficial level only, otherwise we would be the same as Sariputta. So, you know, what, what can we do about that, really? And. Um, As I, you know, I think I said it before, the Buddha said, you know, to take the time to look at the arising and ceasing of phenomena 
is more beneficial for a practitioner than, for example, to give dana to a Buddha and, and, and the whole Sangha, which is considered you know, a very, very meritorious thing to do. But he said, it's much more beneficial for your progress in terms of insight and wisdom and perfections if you look at the arising and ceasing just for one moment. So just try to really take that in, what that means. It's amazing, I think. Because it's very simple. It's a very simple truth, but because it's so simple and because it permeates our whole lives, it's too big to really see it. It's like, like that. Like a fish in the water, not knowing that it is wet. Mm. We're living in constantly changing inside and outside and everywhere, all over. But we, are, we don't know it. Because if things are changing in our lives, we often get pretty distressed, isn't it? And if they're changing, if they change for the better, that's fine, you know, but if they change for the worse, we don't want to know about it. Or we are sometimes surprised, we are shocked, and so on. So that's why it's so important to, you know, make the mind still to a certain degree by just sitting down or bringing awareness to what's going on in the present moment and then uh, opening up to that simple truth of arising and ceasing. Because if that is really seen for what it is, it does lead to, to disenchantment. Because if we can see impermanence, which the Buddha you know, was um, presenting us with a with a set of of suggestions, you know, to investigate um, our experience, and he calls that the three characteristics of life, or the three signs, and the first one is impermanence or nietzsche. The second one is uh, dukkha or unsatisfactoriness which is the result of impermanence, basically. Those two can be seen quite easily, I think. At least intellectually, we can see them quite easily. And then the third one is, is uh, the result of the first two ones. The third one is a bit more difficult to discern. It's um, selflessness, meaning, you know, that all phenomena, all objects which are arising and ceasing, they don't have an unchanging core or an unchanging um, essence to, to them. Well, you know, in terms of human being, I'd say, you know, that <coughs> there's no soul with, which is unchanging. There's no kind of a part which uh, survives after the body dies. You know, when the body dies, the body rots into the ground. There's not a little bit left over which mm. said this is the core of that person. There's nothing left. So that's, that's the third characteristic, is anatta. And this was very, this was the very new element the Buddha brought in. The first two, like impermanence and unsatisfactoriness, other teachers were teaching as well. But the, 
characteristic of selflessness that was the new contribution that Buddha brought. And in sometimes it's also translated as, as um, voidness or emptiness. Because if you those three factors, those three characteristics together make make it very clear that all phenomena are not, not things but processes, constantly changing processes which are unreliable and which lack an unchanging essence. And because of that, they are void. They are void of, of self. They cannot be called me or they cannot be called mine. And if we, if we call them me or mine and try to grasp them, suffering is the result. But if we know them for what they are and we don't try to grasp them, there's no suffering. An arahant who fully has seen that, or a Buddha who fully has seen the voidness of all conditioned phenomena, still lives in the same world as you and me, where everything is constantly changing, but they don't suffer. Because they don't have a need to attach to anything. And as long, you know, as long as we haven't really penetrated to the fact that everything is constantly changing, as long as, as, as the mind still, you know, sees a possibility to cling to anything, it cannot let go fully into, into the unconditioned, it cannot let go fully into what's called in the scriptures Nibbana. It still attaches to this or that depending, you know, on, on our past conditioning. And for example, you know, when, when you are really, you know, in the flow of, uh, for example, observing the changingness of phenomena, if you're really fully with it, fully aware of it, at that moment you c cannot attach at the same time. So that's like a taste of, of Nibbana, really. Just a little sample of it. When you are really fully with the changingness and not attaching to anything, at that moment you have a taste of how it is, you know, a life without attachment, without suffering. A life just fully in the flow with phenomena as they arise and cease. So, you know, if you sometimes have have uh, experience like that, reflect on it. Cherish it, but not in the way of attaching to it and, and, you know, wanting to reproduce it because that's the recipe for suffering again, you know. But just remembering how it felt and remembering the ease of non-attachment. The Buddha, you know, because the Buddha was um, very much willing, you know, to look at the ugly side of life, you know, at, at things which nobody wants to, to know about, you know, old age, sickness and death and all kinds of things, you know, people don't want to know because they are not 
beautiful and they are not inspiring. And because he was, he was uh, teaching that if you, if you don't have the willingness to look at those things, there's no way for you to ever be able, you know, to, to let go. Because if you're f afraid of those things, then they, uh, you are under their spell, basically. But if you can turn around and, and if you can look at it, then you see them for what they are and they are just like all other phenomena. They are arising and they are ceasing. They are unreliable and they are not self. So instead of you know, getting stuck on, on the content and on the appearances, just looking at the structure, and that's what, what um, Vipassana is all about, you know, not getting stuck on the surface. If, she, if the surface is beautiful or ugly, not getting stuck there, but going into it, going, penetrating, and seeing the structure, which is the same for all phenomena. They are all arising and ceasing, they are all unreliable, and they are all not self. As simple as that. And if that's fully understood, that's the ultimate medicine. And the Buddha was compared sometimes with, with, a, with a physician, with a doctor, because, um, you know, in his very famous teaching about the Four Noble Truths, he was, um, he was presenting his teaching in the same way as, a, as an Indian doctor would um, diagnose a patient when he would come with, with, an, with an ailment. So that the first noble truth saying that there is, there is dukkha would be compared to the diagnosis. You know, somebody coming to a doctor and saying, I'm sick, the Buddha would say, you are sick and your sickness is called greed, hatred and delusion or shortly speaking, ignorance. So that's the diagnosis, the first noble truth. And the first noble truth has to be understood which means you know, we have to understand that we are sick, but not a way of wanting to, you know, make you feel depressed, but it's just saying the way things are, you know. You are not um, really seeing what is happening. Your, your um, perception of things is distorted. It's not in congruence with, with the way things are. It's, it's something which needs uh, attention, basically. And then the second noble truth is uh, finding out, you know, what is the reason of the illness? And, or, you know, what is the virus or what is the bacteria which has caused that illness? of greed, hatred and delusion, and that, that's the origin of suffering, or the origin of dukkha, and that's the feeling, you know, that there is a self, that there is a man, that there is somebody there who can possess things, or who can, you know, who is aging, who is, who is getting ill and who is dying. This attachment is, is the reason for, for the dukkha, for the suffering. And that has 
to be let go of. But not, not by pushing it away, but by, by looking into it really deeply. So first there is, is the, the illness of greed, hatred and delusion or ignorance. And then the virus which is causing the illness is the feeling of I and mine, the identity you know, with the process of the body and of the mind, putting something on top of it, an identity, which in a conventional sense is necessary in order to function in the world, but ultimately it is not in accordance with truth, it's not in accordance with the way things are. Therefore it causes suffering. So that was the diagnosis first and then uh, um, you know, finding out the, the reason for the illness. And then the third noble truth, it's the um, cessation of uh, suffering, or in, that, in, in our case it would be the cure for the illness. And, and the cure is, is, is basically the teaching of the Buddha, the Dhamma is the cure. And the Buddha was saying, um, you know, he has taught many, many things and there have been so many books have been written about it and so many suttas he has been teaching. But he said, you know, in order to be able to cure yourself, you just have to understand like a handful of what he has been teaching. And that handful of leaves is encapsulated in the Four Noble Truths, which I am just speaking about. So the illness of greed, hatred and delusion, then the reason for it, the virus which has caused the illness is the identity or of I and mine which we, you know, superimpose on top of our experiences. And then the cure is, is the handful of Dhamma which is <coughs> For example, you know, looking at phenomena in terms of arising and ceasing, in terms of um, unsatisfactoriness and in terms of uh, not-self. That's, for example, a perfect, you know, antidote for, for the virus of I and man. And then, you know, also because he's a good doctor, he has also provided us with a treatment plan, you know, how we should <laughs> take the medicine, this handful of, of suggestions, and that's the Noble Eightfold Path, is the treatment plan. Starting, you know, with, with having right view, which means, you know, with understanding what has to be let go of, and then setting forth on the path and, and, and just keep on going, you know. Even if it is a bumpy ride, as I said before. And just, you know, keep on going however bumpy it is. Because we are knowing it's changing. It's constantly changing. And it all starts 
with you know, the willingness to look at arising and ceasing, which is so close to us in all ways in our daily life. It's constantly there. We just have to be willing to open up to that fact. And not in a way, you know, in a way it's kind of saying, oh God, now everything is arising and ceasing. I just can commit suicide because there's no way, you know, that I can find any happiness in this world. It's not like that. It's much more, you know, if you live according to the laws of nature, if you understand them, and if you're not living against them, you can find peace in the midst of arising and ceasing. You can find balance in the midst of it because you don't expect something which is not to be found anywhere. You do not uh, expect stability from conditioned phenomena, but you find stability within you know, adapting your expectations to what is really possible. And that's what enlightenment is. You know, to completely and utterly leave behind all hopes and fears in terms of finding stability in an unstable uh, material world. But stability can be found through you know, applying mindfulness and through, um, you know, cultivating wisdom, that can give you stability. Knowing deeply and utterly, you know, that all things are constantly changing, unreliable and not self. If that is really fully known, then there is stability in, in the midst of the unstable. And then, you know, if that's really fully seen, joy arises naturally. But it's not a joy which comes from having all your desires fulfilled, you know, having uh, bought all the cars and all the computers, mm. you know, in the universe <laughs> to make you happy. But it's because, you know, there's no more uh, wanting there. And all desires are fulfilled. If you don't want any car and any computer anymore, then you know, then you have them all at the same time. That doesn't mean you know if, if a car comes your way, a, a nice computer comes your way, that you don't use them, but you don't expect them to make you happy. So it's a very different way of. Uh, living in the world. You know, to be in the world but to not be of the world. It's it's a very subtle difference. When the Buddha speaks about, you know, realizing Nibbana, that doesn't mean you know that you go to another planet or somewhere. You're still here. And still everything is, you know, cars are breaking down and computers are cracking up and all of that still happens. Mm. But it doesn't give any suffering. 
because nothing has to be exact in a certain way for, for an enlightened being to be at ease. You know, computers can be fixed, cars can be fixed, there's no problem. And going with the, with the waves of how life is unfolding, not expecting anything. But not in terms of, uh, you know, being um, frustrated or being uh, completely disappointed. But it's, it's a freedom of uh, being free from wanting. It's a very different joy, which is independent from things going your way or my way. And this joy, you know, is the, what the Buddha wanted us to, to taste. Sometimes really resting in awareness and being able to see the changing as a phenomena and not attaching for a moment or two. That's a taste of that joy. And I hope, you know, you have at least a few moments of that during the retreat. Because, you know, that is um, a joy which, if you have tasted it, you will not forget it. And it will encourage you and it will, you know, fuel you to keep going through this bumpy ride of uh, samsara. And I hope that I have been able to uh, give you some pointers for the practice. And if it hasn't been helpful, then please uh, leave it behind. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.